in the book of Colossians, looking at four announcements we find about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrated on Friday. The first announcement we looked at was the fact that Jesus always was and always will be God. But even before we looked at that, I shared with you a verse from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11 that I said basically sums up the book of Colossians, the theme of the book of Colossians. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. And I wonder, as we look back upon our Christmas, can we say that that was true about our Christmas celebration? Christ is all and in all. And sometimes as Christians, we look back upon our celebration of Christmas and we, we say, was, well, did you have a Christ-centered Christmas? Did you guys celebrate Christmas in a Christ-centered way? And I don't know about you, but sometimes, I know at least some people, sometimes I kind of twinge with a little bit of guilt, like, oh no, I actually did unwrap a gift. And I don't know if that was Christ-centered or if that was secularizing Christmas or not. And I would say this, I would say that Christ has given us all things richly to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. Is there a better gift giver, thank you, is there a better gift giver in the world than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Is there a better gift that we have ever received other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Gift giving, although it can be secularized, although it can be uh, indicative of consumerism in our culture and materialism in America, etc., etc., I'm sure it can be, I know it can be, but let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Gift giving can be a very uniquely Christian experience. We think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 who says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Speaking of the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope as you enjoy meals and little, little desserts and the Christmas calories that, of course, don't count. I hope that you, as you enjoy those, you remember the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6, that he has given us all. He, God, not Paul, God, has given us all things richly to enjoy. Christ is all and in all. So that's just something that I was reflecting on as I prepared this sermon and as I thought back upon the great Christmas that our family was blessed to have thought about how much we're blessed and how grateful I can be because of the Christ-centeredness that I am able to celebrate Christmas and New Year's with because of his grace. Because it's about looking at our world through a biblical worldview. Anyway, back to our sermon. The first announcement we looked at in the glorious announcement series was the fact that Jesus always was and always will be God. He didn't become more God as he grew up. He was no less God as a baby than he was or is right now. Jesus always was and always will be God. And not that he's half God, half man. He is 100% God and 100% man. So the fact that he is God takes away no way, shape, or form from the fact that he's a human being. It's the mystery and the truth of the hypostatic union, which we see throughout the scriptures. And the fact that Jesus is fully man takes away in no way, shape, or form from the fact that he is very God. And that's something that the Colossians wrestled with. We spoke about that week, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is God. The next announcement was that we looked at the fact that Jesus Christ lives within us. Colossians 1 and verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ, what? In you, the hope of glory. And last week, as we celebrated Christmas as a church family, we gloried in the fact that Christ came to solve our biggest problem. And this week, we look at one final announcement, and that is this. Jesus calls you to fight sin in your life. And you might look at that and say, that sounds a little less than glorious. Like, here's a glorious announcement. Jesus is God. That's pretty glorious. Here's a glorious announcement. Jesus lives in you. That's pretty glorious. Here's a glorious announcement. Jesus calls you to fight that which comes natural to you. You're like, that's really hard to hear on an already dark and dismal, cloudy Fort Thomas Sunday. But it is a glorious announcement. It's a glorious announcement because we have hope. It's a glorious announcement because we have help. And it's a glorious announcement because of this. And I want you to remember this. Write it down. It's not in your outline. It's just something that I want to tell you. God's commandments assume God's enablement. When God calls you to something, he's not going to call you to something that you can't do 
without his help. He's going to help you do that. He's not calling you to do things just so he can, you know, nudge the other members of the Trinity and look down and say, watch, he can't do that. He can't do that at all. Look at this. Watch this. Look what I've commanded him to do. Watch. He'll never be able to do that. <laughs> look what I've asked her to do. Look at the trial that I've called her to. Watch. You think she's going to get through this? <laughs> she's never going to get through. That's not how God rolls. God's commandments, God's providence, everything God has foreordained for our lives assume his enablement. So if God calls you to fight sin in your life, he's not going to say, you got to fight that sin. Oh, go on. Go on now. Just go on and fight. See how you do. He's going to give help. He's going to give hope. He's going to give grace. He's not just going to call you to something and then just shoo you out on your own. So when we say that it's a glorious announcement that Jesus has called us to fight sin in our life, it's glorious because, number one, it's really cool that we can fight sin, that we're not just going to be the victim of our sinful nature. And number two, it's really cool because God gives us hope and help in this, our time of need. We can come boldly before the throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews says, in this, our time of need, and ask for hope and ask for help. So we're going to focus on Colossians chapter 3, which hopefully you've opened to already. Colossians chapter 3. And right now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And if you uh, would be so kind, if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word from Colossians chapter 3. This is what the word of God says. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to be able to be in the house of the Lord today with the family of God. Father in heaven, we're grateful to be able to hear from you through your word. We're grateful, Lord, for the hope that comes with knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're grateful to be able to celebrate Christmas in a very real way that goes beyond just the superficial joy that one would have without Jesus Christ, but that we can have true and lasting joy and peace, regardless of circumstances, although they may be hard, uh, regardless of what we face in this life, regardless of trials, of tribulation, and even today, regardless of the power of sin that sometimes seems to wage war at us, we can have hope. We can have help. And for that, we thank you. And Lord, even as Jesus reminded us during our time of singing, Lord, we look forward. We look back on your first coming, but we look forward with great anticipation to your second coming, where you will make all things right, where you will rescue your people, where we will spend eternity with you. Even so, come. Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, in the text we just read, Paul reminds us in right there in verse 1 of who we are. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He says, if you were raised with Christ, but actually a better rendering of the original Greek into our modern day English would be since, not if. Since you've been raised with Christ. He's writing to Christians, people who have been born again. So there's no possibility that a Christian wouldn't have been raised with Christ. In fact, a a straight reading from the Greek would probably read something like this. Since you were co-resurrected with Christ. Now, why am I telling you this? 
Well, because I believe God would have us be reminded today of our identity in Christ and what it means to have been raised with Jesus, co-resurrected. A co-worker shares work with someone else. They share responsibility for the task at hand and share in the fruits of their labor. That's what co-workers do. And friends, we've been co-resurrected with Christ. We bring sin to the table with no righteousness to offer whatsoever and nothing but certain and eternal death to face. But Christ, the spotless lamb, the spotless lamb of God, brings holiness, perfection, and righteousness to the table with nothing but eternal life to offer. He's taken on my sin, and I've taken on his righteousness. And that can be said of you if you're a Christian. He's taken on the death that we deserve, and I've taken on the eternal life that only he can provide. He has raised himself from the grave, having victory over all death, over all sin, and I am co-resurrected with him. I share in his resurrection, and even though I will die one day, I will rise with him to glory because I've been co-resurrected with him. And that's why we can say, along with the hymn writer, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. The fact that Jesus would do that for us is glorious. Since you've been co-resurrected with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Why? Well, read on in verse 3. For you have died, Colossians 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, we've spent several years, actually, in a series throughout the book of Romans. And perhaps this will remind you of Romans 6 and verse 11, where Paul tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, if we're only co-resurrected, then we've also shared in the effect of Christ's death as well. We're the direct beneficiaries of what Christ has done on the cross for us, so we're dead to sin and alive in Christ. Look at verse 4 in Colossians 3. We're further encouraged to remember that when Christ appears again, who is our life, we will also appear with him in glory. But now Paul takes on a different approach and gives us something to do. Look at verse 5. We read on in verse 5 that in light of this, we're to put to death what is earthly in us. Now, wait a second. If you've been following along, you'll see that Paul just spared no ink at all in telling us that we're all set, right? I mean, verse 1 says we've been raised with Christ. That's done. Verse 3 says that he tells us that our life is hidden in Christ. That's done. Verse 4 says we'll appear with him in glory. That's as good as done. If it's done, what is there left to do? In other words, why is there a therefore followed by imperatives? Well, there's a difference between sin's penalty and sin's power. Let me say that again. There is a difference between sin's penalty and sin's power. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, you're just seeking, or maybe you're not seeking, you're just here because you're visiting some family and friends, I'm really glad that you're here. But if you're for any reason not a believer, uh, you will suffer the penalty of sin. And Romans 3 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now, sin leads to death. Now, without Christ, you have no hope, no help, no power, no refuge. There's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And the only thing that stands between you and the penalty of sin really is just time. The only thing that would stand between you and the penalty of sin is a ticking clock. And you have an appointment with death. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is uh, appointed for each of us to die once and after that the judgment. And that appointment with death has been set from the foundation of the earth for each and every one of us. And the only thing is we don't have access to that calendar. That calendar has not been shared with us on Google. That calendar has not been told to us, and we don't know when that appointment is. And that, this is not a fear tactic. It's just the truth. In a recent poll, the death rate is one apiece. That's just truth. Um, I mean, it, it's not, this is not some scare tactic. This is not fear-mongering. Hopefully you knew before you came in here today that one day you will die. And if that's news to you, now you know. But if you're not a believer, the only thing that stands between you and the penalty of sin is time. You are going to die. You're 
One and only sure and certain hope to be saved from this penalty is faith in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Now, if you're a Christian, which doesn't mean you're perfect. It it means you, you are putting all your eggs in the one basket of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. If you're a Christian, that means you have saving faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust him. I'm going to put all my eggs in this one basket. I'm going to put all my trust, all my hope in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. I believe that he really did pay the penalty for my sin. So much so that I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. That's faith, forsaking all I trust him, saving faith. If you're a Christian, which doesn't mean you're perfect, but means you put all your faith in that basket of what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross, that means you've been saved and you have a love for Jesus Christ. Then you and I are no longer under sin's penalty, which is death. We will experience victory over the grave for we've been given the gift of eternal life, right? Colossians 3 and verse 1, we've been what? Co-resurrected. We've received that gift from our Lord and Savior. Victory over the penalty of sin, yes. And that happens in an instant. The instant you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But what about the power of sin? That's a process. Victory over the penalty of sin? Instantaneous, one time, we call it justification. We've been justified before God because of what Jesus Christ did for us in dying on the cross, and in being raised to life. But victory over the power of sin, that's a process. That's an ongoing process of sanctification in the believer's life. So in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul reminds us that we're victors in Christ, we've had victory over the penalty of sin, but we're still living in a sin-cursed world with sinful flesh that is weak, even though our spirit is willing. So we must continually put sin to death daily, And you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time. You know that sometimes we need to put sin to death hourly. Some days it really ramps up, doesn't it? It's a constant process. So in the time that remains today, I want to show you three what I call not-so-easy steps to improve your spiritual hygiene in 2016. You say, hygiene? Yes, hygiene. Three Three uh, steps to improve spiritual hygiene. And I'll try to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm a shower guy. Amen, right? You're thankful, right? You're sitting close. So I, I'm a shower, I mean, and what I mean by that, not, not just that I bathe, but I like showers. I look forward to showers. Does anybody understand that? I'm a, I'm a shower guy, right? Okay, I, I enjoy the process of taking a shower. Now, it doesn't mean I take an hour and a half. But every day is going to start out with a shower. I'm also a morning shower guy, by the way. I don't shower before I go to bed. I understand that sometimes, you know, I had a friend who's in construction. He says, trust me, my wife wants me to shower before I get in that bed. I understand that. I don't work in construction. I like showering in the morning. Truth be told, if it was efficient and convenient to do so, I might shower several times a day. I like showering. I just enjoy it. Just feel refreshed. I enjoy, I think I've made the point. I, I enjoy Showering. But can you relate to that? Do you just look forward to a shower? To, you put the water up to scalding hot, then you roll it back just a little so you don't have to go to the burn unit, and you enjoy showering. Okay. Showering isn't a one-time thing. You're welcome. It's something you do fairly regularly. And right now, you may not even realize it. You've been blessed by the fact that the person next to you Showers fairly regularly, or you're concerned that they haven't been. (laughs) But showering isn't a one-time thing. It's something that we do on a fairly regular basis, hopefully daily. In heaven, it will be multiple times throughout the day. But it's supposed to be a regular, consistent part of your life and should stop when you're dead. Until then, please shower. Our sanctification, our spiritual growth isn't a one-time thing. It's supposed to be a process, a regular, consistent part of our life that stops when we're dead. So today, I want to show you three steps, three steps to improve what I'm calling your spiritual hygiene. And hopefully, as we close out one year and start a new year, 
This would be something that you would consider as you think about what the Lord would have you do in 2016. I mean, really, in God's economy and in God's timetable, he doesn't, he doesn't prefer one day over another or one year over another year. But there are certain times in our life, certain times in our culture where we're more prone to think about how am I doing and what might I do? How am I doing and what might I do next? And this is one of them. This is the last Sunday service that we'll have in 2015. So it, it serves us right. It serves as a good time for us to reflect and to look back and also to look forward with hope. Until the Lord tarries, what might we do, not just to have a better life, but to please God more in different areas of our, in different areas of our life? Three not-so-easy steps to improve your spiritual hygiene in 2016. Let's get right to it. Number one, you need to actively seek to put off sin in your life. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Uh, look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Verse 9. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And we see very similar things in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, as to what we're looking at in Colossians today. Let me give you four reasons sin must be put to death. Not just kicked aside, not just pushed far away, but put to death. To death, must be killed. First, sin brings forth death, and it will, so it will either kill or be killed. If it's not killed, it will kill. You can't underestimate the power of sin. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to kick back, relax, settle in, and not take sin seriously. And the enemy would love nothing more for you to just say, you know what, who among us doesn't have a little sin in their life? It's really not that big a deal. The enemy would love nothing more for you to say, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't sin as bad as he does, and I don't sin as bad as she does, so just saying. Hashtag just saying. It's okay. So I, I'm not going to really put sin off because I'm not as bad as they are, not as bad as he is, I'm not as bad as that person is. You can't underestimate the power of sin. The enemy's M.O. in the Garden of Eden when he lied to Eve and said, you will surely not die. Chill out, Eve. It's a piece of fruit. You're not going to die. We think of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where sin is present, death is not far Away. Don't forget what happened in the garden. Don't forget Genesis 3. Adam and Eve didn't physically die right there, but they certainly died spiritually. And don't think for one second that just because you can't see an immediate effect of sin, that there is no effect because there most certainly is. Don't be fooled just to think, well, I'm either getting away with this or, oops, I did that, but I don't see an effect. Don't think that there's no effect because there most certainly is is. That's why when we're blessed, and I do mean blessed, with the opportunity to see sin in our lives, we don't need to mess with it. We don't need to push it around, play with it, kind of brush it aside so it's not in our way. We need to kill it. Because when sin is present, death is not far. It's a murderer. It's there to kill. And if you don't kill it, it will kill. There's a quote in your sermon outline from uh, Richard Baxter. And it says this, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. And though it bring you to the grave, as it did your head, capital H, Jesus, it shall not be able to keep you there. Treat sin as the murderer it is and kill it before it kills you. Look at verse 5 in Colossians chapter 3. Some of our translations say, put to death what is earthly in in you. That's what the ESV says. Uh, Some say, put to death your members which are on the earth. New King James says that. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. That's what the New American Standard says. But the Colossians would have read this. Kill the members of your earthly body. Kill the members of your earthly body. Not just consider them dead. It's a very real, very proactive thing that we're being called here to. 
Paul goes on in Colossians 3 to make a, a hit list of sorts of sins that he calls to the attentions of the Colossians. So it's, it's not the members, the body parts that we're to focus on. It's the sins associated with our earthly bodies that God wants us to kill. One of the reasons you need to kill sin is that if you don't kill it, it will kill you. Two things standing in the room, you and sin, and someone's going to die. And if you don't kill sin, it will bring death to you. Secondly, sin invites God's judgment on unbelievers. Sin invites God's judgment on unbelievers. Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And just in the previous verse, in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, since unbelievers don't have saving faith in Christ, they will not be saved from God's wrath in the day of judgment. Therefore, the wrath of God abides on them, John three thirty six. And they're storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment, Romans 2 and verse 5. And the only thing separating them from this judgment is time, or as Jonathan Edwards puts it, is the mere pleasure of God. Now, that's not to say that God takes pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite, that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But it's the mere pleasure of God in him being pleased to wait, to give people time to have faith, in time to have hope, in time to submit, to bow before the Lord in faith and repentance. That is all that separates them from judgment. It has not pleased God to pour out his judgment as of yet, but it will happen. And sin brings wrath. Now, those of us who are believers, the saved, the redeemed, we've been delivered from the wrath to come. So we don't walk around in fear. We don't walk around in fear wondering what's going to happen if we drop dead. Wondering, what if my date into eternity is a lot sooner than I thought it was? We don't walk around in that kind of fear because the penalty has been paid for. We've been delivered from the wrath to come. Paul is telling us we ought not take part in thoughts, words, and deeds that are associated with those who will receive God's eternal wrath in hell. Now I'm going to take a little step away from the notes of something that just occurred to me that I would like to encourage you in. When you know that the wrath of God is coming, and you know that judgment is coming, are you happy that some people are going to hell? Because if you are, you shouldn't be. We are to love the fact that we've been treated with mercy. We are to remember the fact that we have been rescued from the fires of hell, rescued from the judgment, which means we're not going to chuckle and applaud as certain people or certain groups or people of a certain agenda or a certain background or a certain uh, whatever, a certain anything. We're not going to applaud and say, wow, look at them burn. But sometimes, sometimes I get the feeling that Christians are excited about the fact that even though the wicked prosper in this age, they will not prosper in the day to come, and they get excited about that. Does that, does that make sense? Look at me. Don't. That's really not cool. We should be excited about the fact that God will receive glory in all things. We should be excited about the fact that we have been rescued. But look at me. Your heart should ache. You're, you should be sick to your stomach over the fact that the wicked will perish. That should not be something that just you, whoop, they're going to burn. Jesus did not have that attitude with you. God the Father did not have that attitude with his children. How much more so should we not have that attitude with our fellow sinners, made in the image of God, just as deserving of the wrath to come as you and I were, but for God's grace?
The only reason you're not headed to a fiery hell is because God saved you, not because you were so wise or you were raised in such an awesome home or because you did this or you made that choice. It was the mere pleasure of God that he would open your eyes to truth, that he would save you and rescue you. And if you think that you did that through any way, shape, and form on your own, you've got another thing coming to you. The Bible says, what have you received that was not freely, what, given, just given to you? You didn't earn this. Well, if they would wise up and come to Christ, they wouldn't burn. You didn't come to Christ because you wised up. You came to Christ because the hound dog of heaven chased you down and opened up your eyes to truth. You didn't open the door to let Jesus Christ into your heart. The Holy Spirit snuck in the back door, broke in the window, came up to you, kicked you down, held you down and said, open the door. To which you said, yes, I will do that. And then you opened the door and Jesus Christ gave you peace and hope and joy. But had the Holy Spirit not gotten a hold of your life, you would be going to the same hell as others. Do not take joy in something God does not take joy in. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. We want to kill sin because sin invites God's judgment on unbelievers. We also want to kill sin because sin invites God's discipline on believers. Keep your finger in Colossians chapter 3 and turn over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, while unbelievers experience the wrath of God, we as believers invite the chastening hand of God into our lives if instead of putting sin to death, we choose to feed it. So if we choose to not kill sin and just kind of throw it a bone every once in a while, if we choose to not kill sin, but actually just pet it, you know, give it a little pet on just like you would like a dog of like, you know, if you, we choose to not kill sin, but we kind of get down on one knee and just let it lick us every once in a while, we invite God's discipline into our lives, not his judgment, but our discipline. Uh, unbelievers experience the wrath of God or will experience the wrath of God. We as believers invite the chastening hand of God into our lives if instead of putting sin to death, we choose to feed it. Hebrews chapter 12 thinks of, speaks much of the discipline of the Lord. And in verse 5, we're told not to regard it lightly. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 12 uh, and look at verse 5 in particular. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. While unbelievers experience the wrath of God, we as believers are not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That means we ought to take it very seriously. We're thankful for it. We're thankful for it. It gets our attention and saves us from further sin. And, and, and dads, I, I've, I've stood on the pulpit before and, and exhorted you from the scriptures that if you love your children, you will discipline them. Proverbs 13 and verse 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You discipline your children because you love them or you don't discipline your children because you love you. And the Bible says that if you hate your child, that's when you withhold discipline. I didn't write the mail. I just deliver it. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You discipline your children because you love them. God disciplines his children because he loves us. Just like I hope my children are one day thankful for the discipline given them by Sarah and I. God's children look back and are thankful for his discipline because of the fruits of repentance it brings about in our lives. We're thankful for it. But listen, don't regard it lightly. Be thankful for it, but don't regard it lightly. That means take it seriously. We're thankful for it, but we don't intentionally behave in such a way that we're inviting God's discipline into our lives. We're thankful that God chases us down. 
We're thankful that God goes out of his way to get our attention. Sometimes in ways, I, I, I remember uh, doing a hospital visit at one point, my goodness, years ago, back in New York, and I was visiting somebody who had a, a, an, an appendectomy. And I visited him, and uh, it was, you know, he, he had an emergency appendectomy. I guess they're all emergency appendectomies, right? <laughs> Does anybody plan those? I, don't, I, don't, I, didn't, I genuinely don't know. Anyway, this was an emergency. His appendix burst. He was rushed to the hospital. He had his appendix out. And I went to visit him. And I just, hey, how you doing? And he was white as a ghost, which, I mean, he's in the hospital. You're not supposed to look your best. If you're looking your best when you're in the hospital, that's not a good thing. So I just thought he was, he just said, oh, Peter. I said, are you in a lot of pain? He's like, I'm in a little bit of pain. But God is, God has had this happen to me. He said, Peter, I can't prove it. I, I, I can't connect the dots. But God has used this event in my life. He's a Christian. He's a member of our church. To call to my attention sin that I need to repent of. And then he went down to list a very specific sin. He was, he was addicted to pornography. And he said, and I can't connect it. I can't connect the dots. Well, clearly anybody who has an appendectomy has a porn problem. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying God in a very subjective, personal way. That, that he said, you can't convince me otherwise. I'm telling you. That God is using this in my life to call me to repentance. It was the disciplining hand of God. Lovingly going after someone who would have thrown himself over a cliff to call him back. Now, we have to be careful with causation, right? Many people died yesterday, all of whom drank milk as a child. We don't want to... Like, you, you can't, you got to be careful, right? Not, not everything, no, well, this statistic clearly means that. So we're not saying that a porn addiction brings about an appendectomy or that everyone who has an appendectomy, God's trying to get their attention. Not saying that at all. But God uses catastrophic events in our lives sometimes to wake us up, to give us a shake because we've strayed so far, because we think so differently, or because we've, we've just lost our way. So God uses these events. So providentially, these things happen, and all of a sudden, we're like, God's calling something to my attention. Is God calling anything to your attention? No, it can't be. Don't suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Is God calling anything to your attention? Through something catastrophic, through something unexpected, through something big, through something small, is God calling something to your attention because he loves you and he disciplines those whom he loves? What is God calling to your attention? The unbeliever experienced God's eternal wrath because of their sin. The believer experiences God's loving chastening, the discipline of God. The bottom line is this. All who live in sin will face consequences. And therefore, we're told to kill it, put it to death. Finally, the fourth reason to kill sin. Ongoing conscious sin should be part of our, our past, not our, not our present. Look at verse 7, Colossians chapter 3, verse 7. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. What tense is that? That is the past tense. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. A fourth reason we need to put sin to death in our bodies is it's part of our past, not our present. Paul reminds us from where we came. In essence, Paul is saying, you remember what it was like to live in sin? You, 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 You hate sin. You love Christ. That's why you came to him. Don't go back. Proverbs 26.11 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. What a powerful word picture. Vomit. Can you, ta- you can taste that, right? You're welcome. It's the, yeah, it's the, there it is. But that's the word picture that God has created for us to see. When we return to sin, we're not just going back to something that's not as good. Well, this is the store brand. It's not the real brand. This is generic. This is vomit. He would have us do that when it comes to sin. Like a dog that returns to its vomit. 
That should be the way we feel about returning to living in sin. We've been saved out of that puke. We've been given a seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb with a feast set before us of the best food in the universe, but instead we're going back to barf. Not food just th- that just isn't good enough, vomit. That should be part of our past, the old life we lived, the old perspective we had, the old compass we used to navigate our life, not our present new life with Christ. How serious do you take sin? Do you take sin as seriously in your life as you do in the lives of other people around you? Because we're fault finders and we can usually see the sin a mile away in someone else's life, can't we? I said that at CDT, that when my my kids do something wrong, Justin, Emma, I'm shocked and appalled and I talk like this. They're very breathy. Why? I know who their dad is. They're sinners. I'm a sinner. Why is it that I'm more appalled with the sin I see in other people's lives than sometimes I am in the sin that I see in the mirror? Do you take sin seriously? Do you view sin as God does? Putrid vomit. Or do you think it's just a different type of food, maybe not as good as what you could be eating, but it's still all right. And when God calls sin to your mind, maybe, maybe he is right here right now. Do you want to bat it around and play with it? Maybe wrestle with it, bruise it a bit? Or do you want to kill it and will stop at nothing until you kill it, until it's laying there motionless, breathless, mindless, until you're covered in blood from a bloody battle to the death in which you, by God's grace, arose victorious, but it was a fight to the bitter end. All of this comes in the grand, (laughs) bigger picture of what do we need to do to maintain good spiritual hygiene And one of the things you need to do is you need to put off sin. It doesn't fall off. It needs to be put off. Number two, and quickly, you need to be renewed. You need to know what to starve and what to saturate in order to change your thinking. Look at Colossians 3, verses uh, 10b, the second part. And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Whose job is it to renew ourselves? Is it God's job to transform my life or is it mine? Is it the work of the Holy Spirit in me or is it a conscious, concentrated effort on my part? And the answer is yes. God has designed our walk with him to be a cooperative endeavor. Remember, our walk with Christ is a walk. It's not a, not a ride. We're walking. We're exerting effort. We're watching how we walk, where we walk, and God does great works in us along the way. But our life in Christ is a walk. It's not a ride. One of the most helpful principles in all of the Bible for you to wrap your minds around is this put-off, put-on principle whereby we change and grow and are sanctified. If you look at Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10 in your Bibles, you'll see there are three very active, very intentional steps We're called to take in our transformation. They all work hand in hand with one another. No one is good without the other two. It's it's all three that are at work in the life of a believer. And part of that is putting off. You need to commit to starving your flesh. Romans 13 and verse 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We don't let a little sin in. We don't think this usually tempts me to sin, but I'll just go there. Instead of going there uh, often, I'll go there a little less frequently. We need to put it off. We need to put it off. Kill sin or it will kill you. But more than just putting it off, we need to commit to saturating ourselves with two primary means of grace that God has given us. The word of God and the people of God. Two primary means of grace that the the Lord has given us. The word of God and the people of God. Philippians 4, verses 8 and following says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Literally in the Greek, make your mind these things. 
These are the things that I'm supposed to be saturating in. Starving my flesh, but saturating in truth. And then Hebrews 10, verses 24 and following. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I need to be feeding on the word of God with other people who are feeding on the word of God so that you can stir me up and stir me and encourage me to love and good works. Because this, God, didn't, God did not create me to just be me and Jesus, just me and his word. There's a time to sit in rows. There's also a time to sit in circles. There's also a time for us to face one another. There's also a time for us to have fellowship with one another, for us to encourage one another, admonish one another, pray for one another, serve one another. If only there was a context in which we could do that regularly. Hey, wait, how about small groups? That's why it's the heartbeat of our church, not just because it's our thing. Every church has got a thing. This is our thing. Because it fosters an opportunity to have fellowship with one another and to stir one another up. Finally, number three, you need to put on new ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that are more like Christ's. Okay. In the time that remains, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to close your Bibles. And I'd like you just to look up here as I try to illustrate these things to you. And I've done this before. You may have heard this. If so, summer rerun. So I'm a shower guy. I'm not going to illustrate that. I'm, I'm a shower guy. You're not supposed to shower just once in your life. When I shower, probably like you, I put off my old clothes. I bathe. This is me bathing. Again, bathing. I put on new clothes. I put off old clothes, I bathe, and I put on new clothes. Our walk with Christ needs to be putting off the old man, putting off our old self, putting off the old woman, putting off the old person that exists before we knew Christ, or our old ways of thinking. We need to be washed. We need to be renewed. We need to be sanctified. We need to be saturating ourselves in the word of God. We need to be around one another, having genuine fellowship with one another. Not just hi there, hello. Having genuine fellowship with one another. Washing ourselves so that we can then put on the new person that we are in Christ Jesus. Here's what I'd like to challenge you to think through. Are all three at work in your life? Consistently, not perfectly, but consistently putting off, being renewed, putting on. Let's take each one out of the equation and see what happens. Let's say um, I do not put off my clothes, but I just get straight in the shower and I start to bathe. Okay, so I have my old clothes on and I am bathing. Okay, and then all of a sudden I come over here and I put on my new clothes on top of my wet old clothes. Am I clean? Some of you are grimacing at me. Am I clean? The answer is no. I have old dirty clothes on. So I have my old dirty clothes on with nice fresh new clean clothes on and I've bathed. But I still have my old clothes on. Friends, this is the, this is the person who decides that they're going to keep their old ways and just add in better ways of thinking. I'm going to keep my old ways and also add on some new ways and call that righteousness and call that holiness. But that's not what God has called us to. We need to put off the old. But sometimes people say, I don't want to put off the old. I just want to, I just want to put on new. And I'm going to have a little, little mixture, a little cocktail here of old and new. There's old me and there's new me. And they kind of mix together and I'm content with that. But God calls us to put off the old. Let's take away the bathing part. So I put off my old clothes, right? And I skip the shower and I put on new clothes, right? I have the appearance of being clean. I have the appearance of being new. But it won't take long. You just got to get a little close to me and you'll be like, ah, uh, something's... 
Something ain't right. Because eventually, your true colors come shining through. This is the person who says, you know what? It's just about me. It's, it's about the next 12-step program. It's about the next three steps to this and six steps to that. I'm just going to put off the old and I'm just going to, in my own strength, in my own might, in my own stick to I'm just going to be a better person. I'm going to be, I'm going to take off the bad ways and I'm going to put on the new ways. But I'm not going to stop here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to feed on the word of God. I'm not going to involve myself in fellowship with other people. I'm just going to stop doing bad and start doing good. And you can do that for a little while. It won't last. Fighting in your own strength, fighting sin in your own strength will not last a long time you'll eventually cave. And if you don't eventually cave, it will be known to others around you because you, ha- you haven't bathed. You've not been cleaned. You've not been washed. You've not been renewed. You've not been saturating in something that is good, something that is great, something that is better, something that is valuable. And that is the word of God. We have to put off the old, but we have to be renewed. We need each other in order to do that. And that's not just some cool hipster way. We need each other. I'm not going to crank up, lean on me now. But we need each other. You cannot live the Christian life alone. Finally, let's say we skip this last step. This is always the awkward one to demonstrate. So I, I put off the old man and now I'm renewed and now I'm just nude. So I put off the old man and I... Think with me. So you get out of that shower. You feel what? Kind of... Kind of what? Say it. Yeah, cold. And there's no... What's the nearest thing for me to want to put on? Not a towel. No. Just close in prayer. Forget it. No, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Don't add to the illustration. It's my illustration. I didn't say there was a towel. There's old clothes and there's new clothes. It's my old clothes when I start to reason with myself and say, well, how dirty are they really? And I'm awfully cold and wet and there's nothing else to put on. And I mean, they're dirty, but they're not that dirty. I can get another day out of them, I'm sure. And when I don't put on the new man, when I don't put on, I've been, I put off the old, spent a lot of time in God's word, spent a lot of time with God's people. I love worshiping. I love, but then I don't make an effort to put on the new. The old doesn't seem half bad. Why? Because I'm cold and wet and naked. And I don't want to be cold and wet and naked. I want to be warm. So it's like, you know what? All right, I'll put on the new later. I'm just going to put this on. No one will really know. I can shake this out, get a little Febreze. Do you see that all three have to be at work? And by taking one of those steps out can be pretty drastic. What about you? Those questions I put at the end of the outline, I want you to consider those. Is, is putting off sin and putting on Christ-likeness a normative part of your life? There are sins that I'm working on consciously right now. That the Lord has called to my... Here, watch. The Lord has called to my attention either through a person or through his word or here's a big one, or both. I'm sure those are just coincidental. And I'm consciously working on them. I'm, I'm, I'm praying about them. I'm talking to Sarah about them. I'm saying, how, can, how am I doing here? Do you see a change? We don't talk about this every single day, but it's on my mind. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's on my mind. Not, not because I'm perfect, because I'm that imperfect. So it's on my mind, and I'm working on it. I want to I change. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to talk like that. I don't want to express myself like that. I want to engage more. I want to do this. I want to do that. Whatever it is, there should be something on your mind that you're trying to grow out of or grow into. Is there? 
Can someone come up to you and say, what do you, you know, what, what sin is the Lord called to your mind and what are you, what are you working on? Hopelessness, fear, anxious. It's probably one of those acceptable sins. Because the Bible says you're not to be anxious, but who among us isn't nervous? The Bible says don't be anxious. The Bible says not to gossip, but you, I got to tell you this because you need to pray. It's always you need to pray. Is there something on your mind? I'm working on this. Life's been really hard and I'm really ticked off at God. That's high sin. Yeah, well, he understands. Uh, He does understand that it is high sin. Is there something that the Lord has called to your mind? By God's grace, do you seek to kill sin or do you just occasionally kind of push it away, kick it aside, maybe bruise it a bit? but allow it to maintain a presence in your life. Which sins or sin do you think God is calling you to put on your hit list for 2016? Make a New Year's repentance. Leave the resolutions to everybody else who thinks they can do it in their own resolve, which is why gym memberships go up in January, but they're empty by mid-February. Let's not make that a part of the way we walk with the Lord. We have a zeal for holiness in January, but by mid-February, we're just all right. What is the Lord calling to your mind? Maybe literally make a list and pick one. Pick one. Pick two. I can't hit them all at the same time. True, God knows that. What is God calling you to to really wrestle with, to put to death? And then old habits don't die, but they have to be replaced. Otherwise, if you're not being renewed, you're just nude, and you're just going to be over here, and all of a sudden, the old habit, oh, it's not that bad. I used to do that daily. Now I'm only doing it weekly, so what's twice a week? And you start to rationalize in your own mind, well, it's not that bad. I mean, it's, it's better than him, better than her, and better than her. But old habits don't die, but they have to be replaced. What is God calling you to put on? in place of these sins. And we're members of one another. Who will you ask to help you with the starving of your flesh or the grace saturation you need to put these sins to death in 2016? Who's helping you? So I hope, I hope it wasn't just a message that just tells you sin is really, really bad and you have sin in your life which makes you really, really bad. Let's close in prayer. I hope you see the hope and the help in God's word. That sin is a really big deal. But if you're in Christ, it's not the end of the world. Sins are really big. Both those things are true. Sins are really, really big deal. But if you're in Christ, it's not the end of the world. Because God's given us a solution for sin. Hope for sin. Help for sin. Where he will help us as we navigate these difficult waters in this life. So that we can live a life that is more pleasing to God. So it's my hope and prayer that as you consider this final glorious announcement that Jesus has for you, that he calls you to fight sin in your life, that you would see how glorious it truly is, that he calls you to it, but that he'll walk you through it and he'll glorify himself as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to him in every area. Father in heaven, we come before you now thanking you as a body this one final time this year. Lord, we want to thank you for all that you've done for us throughout 2015. Lord, some of us were saved recently and we have new life in you, which makes 2015 a memorable, memorable year. Lord, some of us have been through trials and tribulations such that we never would have imagined, never saw coming wouldn't wish upon our worst enemy. And it's been hard. But you've been faithful. And for that, we thank you. We thank you for our faithfulness, uh, for your faithfulness to us and the faithfulness that you grant us to have to you during difficult seasons. Lord, we want to thank you for the room that we're in right now. We want to thank you for all that you're doing in our church 
for the new people that are coming, for the word that is able to be preached, for the praising you in song, for the prayers of the faithful, Lord, for the healings and the, and the, 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 the hope and the help and all that you're doing among us, Lord, physically, spiritually, emotionally, changing our minds, changing our hearts. None of these things are small and all of these things come from you. So we come before you to say thanks. Lord, would you bless us as we go from here this day? Lord, we pray for big things in 2016, big things that would grow us, big things that would change us, and big things that would call us to be more like you. For your glory and for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.